0: i
2: listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of When You Love a Traveler by Shiloh Hawkins. Shiloh is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about her, where to see her perform, and let you hear the rest of the song. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Well, where are we going to today, Paula? Today's episode is one of the most infamous
3: cold cases in Cleveland history, the disappearance of Beverly Rose Potts
2: you heard this one yes i'm a true crime fan
3: and this Banatic. is a very very popular one well you know i can't say why some cases become more legendary than others no doubt there are dozens of people missing from cleveland but the tale of this little girl just embedded itself into the hearts of an entire generation and as long as anyone from that generation is still alive beverly Potts will not be forgotten But I'm sure many of our listeners don't know the particulars, even if they might have heard the name. So let me tell you about Beverly. She was born in 1941 and grew into a blonde, blue-eyed girl who was shy, quiet, and responsible. In 1951, she was 10 years old and getting ready to enter the fifth grade. She lived on Lynette Avenue in a nice middle-class neighborhood with her parents, Robert and Elizabeth, and her 22-year-old sister, Anita. Beverly loved performing arts, probably something she picked up from her father, who was a theater stagehand, and her mother, who had had some sort of theatrical career, though I couldn't determine specifically what. So there was no way Beverly was going to miss Show Wagon, an annual summer children's performance scheduled at Halloran Park. That was just a quarter of a mile from her home.
2: So this is one of those like local park, theatrical productions. Yeah,
3: exactly. Okay. Put on by the Recreation Center, probably another sponsor. You know, it's a group of singers, dancers, musicians. They travel to different neighborhoods and you know play at the playgrounds. They bring the, the production close to your home so you don't have to go far. Okay. And on August 21, 1951, she and her best friend and next-door neighbor, Patsy Swing, they got permission to go to the show. The park did not have the best of reputations after dark. There were large trees that dimmed the surrounding streetlights. Local vagrants hung out there. But this was a big social event, and there were sure to be a lot of people around. So after dinner, Beverly's mom gives her a nickel for doing her chores. And at 7 p.m., Beverly and Patsy hop their bikes and head to the park. After about an hour, they decide the event is just too crowded to maneuver on their bikes There were about 1,500 people there that day. So they darted back home, dropped off their bikes, and returned on foot. Now, neighbor Patsy, she had promised her parents she'd be home before dark. So around 8.45 p.m., she told Beverly they should be moving on. But the show was only supposed to last about another 15 minutes, and Beverly said she had permission to stay to the end. So Patsy should go on without her. Well, back at the Potts' home... The family was watching a Cleveland Indians-New York Yankees baseball game on TV. At 9.30, they noticed the clock and began to wonder where Beverly was. Sister Anita called Patsy's house, and Patsy's parents said, well, their daughter's home, but Beverly had been waiting for the show to end. The Potts wait a little bit longer, but at 10 p.m., they have waited long enough. Mr. Potts, he goes and gets a couple of neighbors to join him, and they go to the park to look for Beverly. Now, the park covers several acres, and among the many fields and play areas are some wooded sections. But when an hour of searching turns up nothing, they call police.
2: Is it known how far away the park is from her home?
3: It's just up maybe an eighth of a mile.
2: Oh, not that far at all? Yeah,
3: yeah. Far enough that two little girls on their bikes feel like they're not going to miss anything if they run home, drop off their bikes, and walk back. So, super close. Well, police, uh, you know, they look at the Potts family and they quickly clear them. From all accounts, Beverly's home life was stable and happy. Police spent the next few days going door to door, tracing suspicious cars, searching vacant lots, and using a plane to survey open railway cars. Nearly a thousand city employees volunteered their time to help in the search. The stagehand union that Beverly's father belonged to put up a $1,500 reward. Due to extensive media coverage all across the country, thousands of tips came in. One tip that made the rounds of all the newspapers was that a Cleveland railroad engineer believed he saw Beverly hitchhiking with a teenage boy. The same day, someone in Maslin said they saw someone that might have been her thumbing for a ride. But none of the tips panned out. Nobody thought 10-year-old Beverly was out hitchhiking. And Deputy Inspector James MacArthur revealed frustration that there wasn't an ounce of credible evidence pointing at anything. I've never seen anything like it, he said. It's as if the earth swallowed up the child. Many people described Beverly as being unusually shy, especially around males, and doubly true of strangers. For that reason, investigators wondered if she had been enticed into a car or even a house on her way home by someone she knew. Beverly may have only been 10, but she was trustworthy and responsible, and she was actually hired regularly as a babysitter, so she knew quite a few people in the neighborhood. Could Beverly have been killed by a neighbor and buried in or around one of the houses on Lynette Avenue? Police thought it was a possibility. When school started up again a couple of weeks later, police went to the school to talk to Beverly's classmates. But youngsters live in a very different world. They don't have mature perspectives. They don't remember events quite the same way an adult might. So much of what police learned was untrue, so it was hard to know what to believe. One nine-year-old said she saw Beverly get into a green car with two men. But after all the bad info they got from these youngsters, they didn't know what to take serious. One witness they did believe was a 13-year-old boy who said he passed by Beverly on his bike at 9.30 p.m. She was heading across the park in the direction of her home. Police brought in a number of men who were known sexual predators living in the general area. They questioned each of them and checked their alibis. They couldn't find enough to charge any of them. Police also had their hands full dealing with nutcases. With Beverly's disappearance making news all over the country, there were a thousand phone calls coming in every day between the Potts home and the police station. One call was a girl saying, This is Beverly Potts. Tell my mother I'm all right and I'll meet her right away at Chester Avenue and 13th Street. Police raced to the intersection, but no one showed up. Psychics called. One saw Beverly with pigs and heavy brush. Another saw her in a pool of water. Others said Beverly was hidden in her own home. Police dutifully followed what leads they could, including searching Beverly's home from top to bottom, checking dust on the window sills to see if little hands had been climbing in and out. When a psychic called to say the girl's spirit had come to her and revealed where her body had been buried, police pulled out the shovels. Beverly wasn't there. Another informer said Beverly was killed in a hit-and-run accident, then buried to conceal the crime. Two suspects were hauled in, but they had alibis. When a bottle washed up on the shore of Lake Erie with a message inside saying, I am being held prisoner in a boathouse two miles west of Cleveland, and it was signed Beverly Potts. Police combed boathouses in the area. They decided it was
2: yet another prank. I kind of think this shows you how big of a deal this was. I mean, this was national news, and, you know, these, these types of people kind of come out of the woodwork when that stuff happens.
3: Yeah, the, the bigger the story is, the more the police are going to have to deal with these kinds of cases. A couple of months after Beverly vanished, a man called the Potts home and demanded a $25,000 ransom for the safe return of Beverly. The caller insisted the money be taken to a specific address by Mrs. Potts and Mrs. Potts alone. Police thought it quite unlikely. After all, who calls and asks for a ransom two months after a kidnapping? So a detective took Mrs. Potts' place, dressing up as a woman and carrying a bag of shredded newspaper to the designated drop site. There was a man there waiting to accept the money, and he saw this manly form in a fur coat approaching He got suspicious and took off running on foot. The detective caught up with him, but they soon learned he had nothing to do with Beverly's disappearance. He was charged with extortion. Several suspects emerged over the years. In 1955, so this is four years after Beverly's disappearance, a drifter from Cleveland named Harvey Lee Rush told police in California that he had lured Beverly to a bridge with candy and killed her. He was promptly flown to Cleveland, only to promptly recant his story. He said he had only confessed because he needed a ride back to Cleveland to see his girlfriend. He was packed off to a state hospital. In 1973, so this is more than 20 years after her disappearance, investigators got a letter from a woman who had been a childhood playmate of Beverly's. She recalled that sometimes they played near a certain garage, much to the annoyance of a neighborhood man who might have been capable of killing Beverly, burying her in the garage and covering it with concrete. It wasn't much of a tip, but police acted on it anyway. Armed with picks, sledgehammers, and shovels, they marched to the place, which was by then an auto body shop. They shattered the four-inch-thick concrete floor and dug nine feet down into the soil, looking for a small skeleton. They found nothing. The next year, in 1974, Cleveland police got another tip from a local attorney who told them his client had a brother who might have killed Beverly. Detective James First and Robert Shanklin found and questioned the brother and learned he did indeed live near Halloran Park in 1951. He also admitted he used to pick up and molest young girls there. He said he didn't remember Beverly in particular, but said he had flashes of a memory involving a girl named Beverly. Detectives First and Shanklin believed they had their man, but the county prosecutor's office said they couldn't pursue the case without more evidence. In 1988, a man named William Henry Redmond an Ohio native and former carnival worker, was indicted for the 1951 murder of 8-year-old Jane Marie Althoff in Pennsylvania. That was the same year Beverly went missing. Redmond reportedly told a cellmate he had killed three other girls. But when authorities questioned Redmond about Beverly, he refused to speak to them. It was true that he had a record of child molestation dating back to 1935, and he was in the general area at the time of Beverly's disappearance. But Beverly was tall and looked older than her age. She really didn't fit his M.O. His victims were considerably younger than 10-year-old Beverly. In 1994, another lead, a letter, was discovered under a carpet in a Cleveland house. It had been written in 1953 by a woman who claimed she would caught her husband disposing of Beverly's body in their furnace. But after police caught up to the then 83-year-old woman now living in Missouri, she said she had written the letter solely as a revenge fantasy against her abusive husband. I think she, like, wanted the letter to be discovered one day if he had killed her or something, get him in trouble. exactly. In 2000, a potential break in the case. A reporter at the Cleveland Plain Dealer, Brent Larkin, started receiving letters from a man who said he was in his mid-80s, had cancer, and wanted to confess to molesting and murdering Beverly before he died. He said Beverly was tall. He thought she was older than 10, and he had seen her around the neighborhood. He had become infatuated with her. He pledged to turn himself in on August 24, 2001, the 50th anniversary of Beverly's disappearance. But before the date arrived, he wrote Larkin and said he wouldn't be able to make it after all, that his illness had progressed and he was being put into a nursing home. Larkin believed the letters were a hoax. Authorities were divided between hoax and an elderly, sick man who was either genuine or confused. In any case, the author's identity was never discovered. And in 2015, yet another promising development. Someone had called the Cleveland Crime Stoppers' anonymous tip line in August of that year and left just enough information that police believed the caller truly knew something. But the caller wasn't as specific as he needed to be. They asked for the media's help in asking the caller to call back. They even increased the reward from the standard $2,500 to $15,000. The tipster called back. Well, whatever information the caller shared led police and cadaver dogs to search an area off Martin Luther King Boulevard and another at the Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. But no evidence was found. Beverly's mother died in 1956, just five years after her daughter's disappearance. Technically, it was her liver, but her family said she was just heartbroken and never recovered from missing her daughter. Beverly's father died in 1970. Sister Anita continued searching for her sibling until her own death in 2006.
2: What I find interesting is when... These little girls disappear. It's it's amazing how fast the mothers pass. So we look at Jean Benet Ramsey's mom. Yeah. You know, she she passed away still. Then you have um, Amy Maholovic's mother. Um there was another and, and of course Beverly Potts' mother. It yeah. just seems like it is heartbreak. it it it's being heartbroken, I believe. Children aren't sure. supposed to
3: die before their parents. No, and I think I... your health
2: deteriorates after yeah. you know, a while for sure.
3: Your health and maybe just your will to live. Right. As uh, we had quoted somebody in a previous podcast, you know, when people would rally around them and say, oh, you've got other children to live for. And that mother said, you lose a child, nobody can replace that child. Somebody doesn't move in to fill the void. That void's always there.
2: I love your research because I've listened to plenty of podcasts. You're always giving me something new, which is great. Another thing I really like to look at is when they talk about reward money, they talked about, you know, 1500 back in the day and then just a second ago you talked about how they uh, raised it to 15,000. Well, right. back in 1951, 1500 was equivalent to $15,000. Oh, yeah. Hmm? Yeah, that was a
3: lot of money. Yeah,
2: Absolutely. Well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say. So tonight's armchair
3: detective is Stephanie Lawrence and her 12-year-old daughter, Sarah. Hi, Stephanie and Sarah. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Stephanie is a reporter who covers uh, Summit County Courts for the Akron Beacon Journal and Ohio.com. Stephanie, what other cities have
1: you worked in? You've worked in Columbus. I worked in Mansfield. Mansfield. Yeah, Columbus. Right. And then I've been at the Beacon. It'll be 21 years pretty soon. Awesome. Well, you've been a little bit all over the state. And Sarah, she is an extremely bright son seventh grader who wants
3: to grow up to be what i want to be a chemical engineer a chemical engineer you guys are perfect for this story i'm interested in a mother's perspective and a daughter's perspective about going to the park late at night big festival coming home in the dark De- uh, stephanie as a mom did any did any of that bother you a little bit yeah, You're, by a little bit, your eyes are saying a lot.
1: Yes, there's there's no way, and Sarah and I have talked about this. I would never let her, as a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old, go to a festival like this with 1,500 people, and then her friend's going to leave, and she's going to be there and walking home after dark, and I understand, and I could hear you in my head as I was thinking about this, Paula that it's a different time (laughs) it's a different time but I don't care if it's a different time you still have this young girl going where there's going to be all these people and I always as a mom have gotten nervous in crowds and worried about keeping up with her or losing her so I just don't think it's a good idea then or now
3: you know, doing the research for these podcasts have made me realize that times are not worse for children. If anything, I think children were even at more risk back then. I can't believe the number of children's deaths and disappearances that I found in the newspapers back then. We only think it was a kinder, gentler time. It was not. And I will say, when I was a kid, we would come home, eat our dinner, and we would be gone. And we knew that we came in when the streetlights came on. But other than that, our parents had no idea where we were. We would hop on our bikes and, you know, we could be a mile or two away and our parents would have no idea. And it didn't seem like anything was wrong with it back then, but looking back
4: now, yeah, that was not good. Sarah, how about your perspective as a 12-year-old? I would not be comfortable with going to that big of a festival whenever uh, I'm alone after dark see you have
1: nothing
3: to worry about Stephanie that's
1: good that was the right answer
3: (laughs) well let's jump right to the key question and then we'll go back and pick it apart I'm curious as to whether you ladies have a theory on what you think happened
1: well Sarah and I both did research on this case and interestingly came up with the same main theory of what we think may have happened and it had to do with Patsy her best friend who her final image of her before she uh, disappeared was with a woman with her hand on her shoulder during the show. And so we're wondering who was this woman could she possibly have uh, you know absconded with her after this show and Sarah can talk a little bit about why we think that that could be the case
4: well I feel like a best friend wouldn't just forget the last moment she ever saw her friend and that would be a really traumatic moment for me especially because I've been close to this one friend forever and if that was the last time I ever saw her I would have remembered exactly the image and so I believe that she wouldn't have forgotten. And that's what—that's one of the reasons why it's our main theory. Let me add for our listeners,
3: we did not mention that woman in our podcast story. And I'm glad you found that. I actually found that later. But yes, that was a testimony that the police acquired right after that incident had happened.
4: Also, Beverly wasn't comfortable uh, around men she didn't know. And I feel like if she had there was a woman that she didn't know she would feel more comfortable around that woman. She didn't even feel comfortable around men she did know. So she. that's one of the main reasons why I didn't believe, like, the about the men taking her because um, she didn't she wouldn't even go near a lot of men that's a good
3: point she might have trusted a woman better let me ask you though because one of the kids that the police really believed their story was that he had seen Beverly alone walking across the park after the event was over in the direction of her home If she was alone, then that woman would not have been with her. Do you see a scenario where that woman could still be involved and that kid be right about seeing Beverly walking across the park?
1: I think it's still possible. I know a a lot of the websites talk about the possibility that someone had um, approached her about babysitting, or something like that, which was something that she did. So maybe this woman had talked to her about you know, coming to a certain place to discuss a babysitting job or, or something like that. And, and maybe that's how they got her to go to wherever they wanted her to go.
4: Also, in that image that Patsy had seen, uh, it states that the woman was holding a small child's hand, so she could have approached her about babysitting this young child. Oh, yeah. Sarah, what do you think that woman would have wanted
3: with her? Why would this woman have kidnapped her? I don't have any idea why she would do something like that. Especially if she already had a child with her. I guess we don't know if the child was hers. Maybe it wasn't. That's true. Um, But... Beverly also was of an age where most people who want a child, you don't kidnap them that old because they know too much. So right. if she, if a woman did have something to do with this, I would think it would still be for something nefarious. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. Not,
3: not for a positive purpose. So yeah. What do you guys think about all the circumstances that happened after she was killed, all the crank calls, the guy who tried to get ransom money, the girl who called and pretended to be Beverly and got the police to race to the corner. What do you think of
1: that? I I just think that it's amazing that there's been so many different leads with this one case, and I think it speaks to how this case and this little girl with her you know cute braids and she just looks like the cutest little girl has resonated for so many years and i think that's the reason that you know every however many years i mean i don't think it's it's been a steady number of years but there's been so many different times where they thought okay this is it and one of my other thoughts was could there have been one of those times where they explored a lead And they dismissed it, but that could have actually been it. And so that was one of my thoughts as I read through so many of these different things that had happened over the years, because there have been so many.
3: Yeah. Sarah, does that surprise you that people would be capable of that, of you know, calling the family and saying, hey, Beverly, come get me at this intersection, or some guy, you know, trying to ransom a girl when he didn't have her. Does it surprise you people are capable of that?
4: You know, I feel like a lot of people would try to take advantage of that because the parents are just trying to find any leads so then they might actually believe people. And they might just be trying to get money or get close to the family, and I feel like people are capable of that.
3: I think I've got to give kudos to the Cleveland Police Department because if- it seems like every time they got a lead, they hauled out the shovels and tried. I mean, if you're getting 15, I've heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I heard accounts or saw accounts in the newspaper of them getting up to 1,500 leads a day. I don't even know how you begin to sort through that. But to pull out a lead and say, okay, she might be in a houseboat. So now we all have to go look at all the houseboats and okay now she might be buried beneath the cement of a garage so let's go break up the cement in the garage it just I don't know how they decided what to go after but it certainly seemed like they were going after a
1: lot they had to be very desperate right they they really did want to try to find this girl and solve this case for not just for the family but for the community that I think has been so invested in it for so long Stephanie, you are a
3: police reporter for so many years, and I'm sure you have talked to police officers who have been frustrated by cases that can't be closed. Do you can you share any insights into what officers might be going through? Generations of officers who just can't close a case.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've talked to detectives who have been haunted by certain cases, and I know um, I'm going to be working on a story for the Beacon coming up, and there is an officer who was the first, one of the first, who arrived at a homicide scene and it was a case that always stuck with him and after he retired then he asked for permission to look into the case further because he had never forgotten it and always wondered what happened and unfortunately he wasn't able to ever solve it but i just think that that speaks to how this case meant so much to him that even after he retired he he wanted to continue to work on it and try to solve it Sarah, the technology that you're growing
3: up with is just, it it did not exist when your mom and I were younger. And it's amazing to see the cases that they are closing that are 50 and more years, DNA technology, familial DNA. Do you think there's going to come a day and a time when no criminal is going to be able to get away with anything?
4: I don't believe that that time will ever come. I feel like there are always going to be people who are able to get away with things. Uh, Not just like things like murder, but also stealing. If something like that had
3: happened today, there would probably be cameras on poles somewhere that would have picked up Beverly walking somewhere. Um, cell phones pinging that police might have information from. There's so much today. But it is true, people still get away with murder today.
1: It is true. And you know I think of like surveillance there could have been surveillance cameras on you know some buildings around where that park was or like you said cell phones people taking pictures during the festival or during during the show and maybe they got Beverly with someone leaving with her you know those kinds of images and so it'd be interesting if this you know were in modern times whether there might be more for them to go on based on all the technology that's available well, in the end, without uh, a body, I mean,
3: there's not DNA they can turn to in this case. It's really—I
1: don't know. How are they going to solve this? They need a confession, I guess, or they need to find find her her remains someplace. And so, Sarah and I were talking about it. I don't think either of us, unfortunately, we're we're not very hopeful that this will get solved. Um, although it would be great if it if it did not like I said earlier not not just for I think she has a niece still I mean her parents are dead her sister's dead but I think she might still have a niece not just for the family but for everybody who's interested and read about and watched the the documentary and read the book on this case or read postings on reddit about it I think there's so many people who who really care and would love to see this one you know solved in so many ways she was a community's child
3: and I know there are generations of of people in Cleveland who are
1: still waiting there's uh, one thing I read on Facebook that I thought was, was really powerful this guy wrote we were at Halloran Park every day in the summer playing softball we would eat popsicles and we would always quote give one to Beverly Thinking of her was a way to remember we should be safe. Always home before the streetlights came on. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was a great little insight.
4: So Sarah... Anything else that we didn't bring up that you want to bring up? Well, I just wanted to point out that the no one had any hope that she was still alive. Everyone just thought that she was killed after that day. Even on her birth on her death certificate, it states uh, that her death date was August 24th, 1951, the day of the show. I don't remember what it's called. Uh, they called it the show wagon. Okay. And it seems like on every other uh, disappearance podcast on this uh on Ohio Mysteries they bring up the theory of amnesia but they didn't for this one. Amnesia. That was
3: our favorite uh, go-to for several of our episodes. The police love the idea of amnesia. They didn't think Beverly got amnesia and walked away.
1: Yeah, why wasn't that brought
3: up as an idea? I don't know. Maybe she—maybe it, it's a college thing. You have to have amnesia when you're in college, and she wasn't old enough yet. So
1: Not old enough to develop amnesia.
3: Yeah. Stephanie, Sarah, thank you so much for offering your insights into this case. We
1: really appreciated having you it was great we were very happy to do
2: it well that's it for tonight listeners for photos news clippings and more on this and every episode hop on over to our website ohiomysteries.com paula it's time to tell us more about this featured musical artist that would be
3: Shiloh Hawkins, a very talented singer-songwriter from Youngstown, Ohio. The guitarist is known for her emotive vocals and captivating storytelling. And her music once took her away from us to Austin, Texas, where she was inspired to write tracks like Put the Coffee On and Honey Bee. But the pool of home brought her back to the Buckeye State, and she resettled in Columbus. You can follow Shiloh Hawkins on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. She's got several performances scheduled for this summer. Check out her website, that's S-H-I-L-O-H, hawkins.com. Looks like uh, next up is the Summer Music Series on July 26th in Creekside District, and that's in Gahanna, Ohio. Shiloh's newest album, When You Love a Traveler, just released in March, and it draws inspiration from the 1960s and 70s americana folk jazz and country the song we're featuring tonight is the title track so you've got the soundboard there steve how about giving us a listen
2: you got it here's when you love a traveler by shiloh hawkins enjoy and we'll see you here next week for another episode of ohio mysteries